0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Locks with Lockitude podcast. This is another episode of Chair Convos. And today, my name is still Ade Balogun, by the way. But today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Zandra Robinson. She is an American writer and scholar. Her work focuses on popular music and graphy. And Race and Culture in the American South. She is the author of two books This Ain't Chicago, Race, Class, and Regional Identity in the Post Soul South, 2014, and Chocolate Cities, The Black Map of American Life, 2018. Robinson is an associate professor of African-American studies at Georgetown University. Well, I got all of that from Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) That's not usually how we start out at the salon. (laughs) But I felt that I could do it justice by, you know, asking Google. (laughs) Zandra,
1: I forget that I uh, exist on Google sometimes. You do? So that is funny, yes. (laughs) Yes. I promise I do not Google you before you come to the salon. <laughs> <laughs> I forget I, I forget I exist there that feels like I'm like oh who is she talking about she's so accomplished <laughs> it's me yeah it's you it's all you but thank you very much for having this conversation I'm so today. glad to be here I am so covetous of this podcast I felt left out that I hadn't been on I was wishing she could ask me to be on the podcast oh, <laughs> if I had known I would have asked sooner than later but with this new
0: series we're basically talking about the same things we would have talked about mm. if we were at the silence so it Imagine you were on the chair, and I was actually making your hair. Mm-hmm. Um, I think over the years, and I said in the in the first episode with ABSA that I have met so many people, and we've had fantastic conversations. We've learned from each other, and just stayed. It, it kind of it's a it's a network for itself and I'm hoping that bringing this conversation to the world is useful to somebody out there Mm -hmm. so we're not talking about anything specifically but we're talking about everything Mm -hmm. and everything kind of matters Mm -hmm. okay so one of the first things I would like to explore is your background Uh, because you're a young professor Mm -hmm. how how did you become a professor in your very very early 40s you know how long have you been a professor?
1: You know, so technically, I have been an instructor of record for my own class since two thousand and four, so I was a master student at the University of Memphis, and you <clears throat> I'm gonna repeat that I was a master student at the University of Memphis, and when you're in graduate school, you can teach your own class, so that was my first time teaching my own class fall of two thousand and four. And so I have been pretty much doing that ever since. Uh, That's actually quite
0: confusing. You can teach your own class. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Because it's training for you as you're going to, because you're going to go on and be a professor. So, yeah, when I was in my second year of graduate school, my of my master's. Yep. I taught my own class. It was at 8 a.m. It was an intro to sociology class. I think it met Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And, yeah, it was just kind of like they just throw you in there, (laughs) into the teaching. I can definitely say I'm a better teacher now than I was then. But that's when I started. And I have taught at all kinds of institutions. I've taught at large public institutions. I've taught at community colleges. I taught at a nursing college one time because they had to have a health and society course. I've taught at for-profit universities. I've taught at private liberal arts colleges. And I've taught at big, large research elite colleges.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah. Wow.
1: I actually think I knew you very well. I'm just
0: realizing I I knew you more. (laughs) I'm still stuck on being able to teach your own class so do you get like the curriculum beforehand you make the curriculum up yourself but I don't really understand it Mm -hmm. so the people you are teaching are they using that knowledge for anything yeah you have to grade their papers Uh they have to pass your class yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just like
1: you're the instructor of record you're the professor because you're a professor in training Mm-hmm.
0: but you don't necessarily take the class because you're teaching it.
1: Yeah, no, you don't take it. This is undergraduates. So okay. you're teaching the okay. undergraduates and okay. you're, when you're a graduate student. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay.
0: All right. Mm-hmm. I see. Oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you've been on the path for a very long time. And I remember yes. you telling me you kind of graduated quite young and you've been on this track for a very yes, long time. Somebody,
1: uh, somebody in my family, I was at a family event and somebody mentioned that there was something past the BA and they said, you know, well, then after that you can get the master's. And then I said, well, what comes next? And they said the PhD. And I said, what's the highest? And they said, PhD. I said, I'm getting that. And I think I was like eight years old. And, you know, we were academically, my sister and I, we were very strong students. My mother was very, very, very about the academics and we were, you know, very accomplished. And we were in, what they call here, gifted classes. And yeah, we we were into studying and into our studies. But just for me to say that, when I think of that, it's like, who said that? That's how you know your higher self is talking. Like who, who's, who said that? And so yeah, I did um, actually do that. I got my undergraduate degree and I finished that in three years. And then I was like, oh, what should I do now? (laughs) So I just got the master's because I had extra scholarship money left over from undergrad. I was like, I'll get the master's. Uh, Was that because you completed it in three years? Yeah. Uh And then after that, I said, well, I'll just I knew I was getting the Ph.D., but I thought I was going to get it in literature. And I had taken a detour and gone into sociology because I was was always into literature. That was my thing. And then I took this detour into sociology thinking I was going to go back to literature. But then I realized that if I went back to literature, I wouldn't get any credit for all this master's graduate work I had just done. So I was like, no, I'm going to stick with sociology so I can get some credit towards my Ph.D. And I did. I got a year off of my coursework. For okay. Northwestern, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. But something just struck me. I studied architecture, <clears throat> and the thing that made me study architecture was my high school, secondary school teacher in GS3. I'm not sure what the equivalent of mm-hmm. that class is in America. But he had um, I don't know if I've said the story anywhere else before, but we had the previous week he had taught us how to inscribe a circle in a polygon mm, mm-hmm. and it was an intro to technology class. So you kind of played with the T-square, the drawing board and all mm. of that stuff. And um if I remember correctly, most of the people in the class were boys. This is so long ago, I, I, I don't remember. But the, that week he kind of said, okay, let's do a little bit of revision from what we did last week. And he called like three boys to mm. come do the same thing we did mm-hmm. last week, which was inscribe a circle in the polygon. And they all couldn't do it. It so happened I was listening the week before mm-hmm. and he st- he went ahead, I was in the boarding house. He went ahead to say, you know, your parents, they abandon you here. I'm teaching you wasting, and you're wasting my time. Mm-hmm. And I put my hand up and I was like, I can do it. And I was like, oh, you can come do it. So mm-hmm. I did it. And he looked at me and he said, you'll be a fantastic architect. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was right, but mm. it's, I he was. <laughs> he What do you mean?
1: Of course he was. But
0: I was, uh GS3 would have been what year now? 97. So I must have been around 11, mm-hmm. 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that kind of stuck with me. Mm-hmm. I just decided I'm mm-hmm. going to be a fantastic architect and that's mm-hmm. what I'm going to do. That's mm-hmm. what I'm going to be. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that you can. Speak things into people's lives, mm-hmm. especially when they're very, mm-hmm. very young. Mm-hmm. I think that's somewhat of a lesson for someone like me who plans to have kids at some point. To be very intentional yeah. about the things that you you yeah. say to them, so that <laughs> yeah, you can uh, help forge that path.
1: Yeah, one of my friends, she's older than me, and I was when I had my daughter. <clears throat> sorry, when I had my daughter. I was a lot younger, and so a lot of the parents that I was friends with might be 10, 15 years older than me. And this friend was an older mom anyway. And she had a mom that was an educator, and she said that about her grandmother said about her mother that her mother would always be in the field putting flowers together in bouquets that she just always was doing floral arrangements as a very little girl, like two, three years old, she was doing floral arrangements. And she said that, you know, her grandmother knew that her mother would be a florist. She also became a school teacher, but her business, her main business, her passion was being a florist. And she owned a floral shop until she died and then her daughter um, took it over. And so hearing that advice, and I think my daughter was our daughters were in kindergarten at this time, just made me think like, oh, let me pay attention to the things that my child is interested in, mm-hmm. and not just think that all kids are doing this or all kids do that, because she was very into putting things together, making art. She would she might take a a an empty bottle of water and stick a piece of paper on the top of it and cut it. And I mean, she was doing all kinds of things like that. And before my friend has said that I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, Oh, all kids love to do art but yeah. she really loved to do art and she continues she's grown and she continues to do art well she's a fantastic Neil artist yes she and, is and
0: um, I've seen her work myself even though I've mm-hmm. not been able to patronize a business mm-hmm. yet so I think her, her work is kind of gen z for me he's super (laughs) gen z you have to go in there and tell her you want something grown.
1: because anytime i say you know i want to get my nails done she's like are you going to get something fun mom if you're not going to get anything fun i'm like oh (laughs) come on
0: (laughs) Ah, cool all right so you're a professor you're a writer and you do podcasts as well you've done some audio stuff Mm -hmm. how do you find the time
1: you know, I have more time now than I used to because I don't do anything that I don't want to do. And... That's hey. <laughs> to self id <laughs> <laughs> And this is, it's, it's very hard fought. It's, I think it comes from, it comes from, you know, sort of being on that path so early and staying on it and going through all of the things and getting tenure... But even I always knew that I did not want to be sort of a traditional academic person in the sense that I'm just going to, you know, go through and get my promotions and maybe I'll move into administration and things like that. I was like, all of that exhausts me. I know I don't want that. I just want to rest. <laughs> I just want to rest and have fun and After my father died, it really and this was in 2016, it really um, reorganized my priorities for what I wanted to do in my life. I just didn't have the energy anymore to do things I didn't want to do. And then the pandemic reinforced that idea of just like, okay, what is absolutely essential for you, like for your life force? What is absolutely essential? That's what you have to do.
0: Yeah, I get it, but I almost feel like <laughs> I get it. I completely get it. I agree, but sometimes it feels like it can be difficult. So, as with you talking? There are several places I kind of want to go to. So, let me let me save the best for the last, or what? The conversation I really want to have for the last. So, but in having your kid very young, why didn't it stop
1: you? It, the easier thing would have been to just stop right yeah it was so funny when I so I had moved in with my boyfriend my daughter's father and I hadn't told my mom so then I finally told her I was like oh we live together and she was like oh no you're gonna become pregnant and then I didn't say anything because I was five months pregnant already because I hadn't told her (laughs) and she said oh my god you're already pregnant (laughs) and I said yeah and (laughs) she said well you must finish school you have to finish school and I was like it never occurred to me not Not to to finish school Yeah, and the baby was due in June I graduated in May and yeah I graduated in May I had her The next month. And I was already in summer school online because my undergraduate was in literature and I was going to do the master's in sociology. So I needed some prerequisites. So I was taking statistics and methods online and with a newborn. Yes. And I, there's this thing called the boppy pillow and it fits around your vo- your waist here and you sit you can sit the baby on it. I mean you're technically I mean sometimes you're not <laughs> supposed to do it but I, you sit the baby on it and I would just sit her on it and she would be nursing and I would be doing statistics. Okay wow (laughs) (laughs) that's why i only do what i want now i really yeah i I really did it all back then that was one i mean just so my inner drive was just you know going to to get it done yeah going to continue and i was fortunate you know i had i was young i had an easy pregnancy i had an easy birth you know just super Nothing out of the ordinary. I know ordinary. you make it
0: sound easy, but I don't think it's it's that easy. I don't I mean, even have any kids right now in my life, so I can't imagine trying to add a kid to anything. Well, that I'm I doing. think you
1: know when you when you get older, it definitely is more complicated because it's like, okay, where does this person, where does this little person fit? Where, you know, what in about my, my body? Mm-hmm. What about my body? How am I going to like think about? how I'm going to navigate this when you're young you literally have no sense and so everything you just is go just with the flow. you just go with the flow everything's just slapped together so even for a person like me that was very driven i was just like oh this is just going to work out and so her father when he was in class i had her and when i was in class he, he had her. her it was okay and, and that we just arranged our schedules in that way but um The other reason why I didn't just quit was because a year later he killed himself. So, this was like a few days before I started teaching that first class for the first time that he killed himself. And I was like, oh, now I really can't quit. You know, there's no other blood parent. You know, my mother. Um, and father and sister would help out but we're from the kind of I'm from the kind of family where it's just like you know you had that baby that's your baby and so yeah I was very like oh I have to just keep going so I did and I I taught that class and then I was also applying to PhD programs and for a minute it made me feel like oh Maybe I shouldn't apply to things far away. Maybe I should apply to programs that are closer to home, you know, so I can have some help. But then I was like, no, I have to go big or go home. Like I have to go to the best school because I'm a single mom. Now I don't have this other parent. I need to be able to do everything possible to make sure that we can have a good life. So then Because I had always planned to apply to Northwestern and he and I had discussed going to Chicago because he was going to go to dental school there and then I was going to go to Northwestern. I mean, this was all a dream. Like, yeah, I didn't know I was going to get into there. Actually, I just really wanted to to get (laughs) into there. And yeah, I did. I got into there and then I got into several other places. But Chicago wasn't far from Memphis, per se. You could drive it. It was like eight or nine hours and there was a train. <laughs> it's You're... funny that you <laughs> said eight or nine hours, you could drive it. You could drive it. I mean, like, not all the time, but if you had to, you could drive it. I certainly did. Now, I would not drive anywhere now. Honestly. I just would not drive anywhere now. But yeah, you could drive it if, you know, and I did. Um, And there was a train. Okay. Amtrak. And a bus. I took the bus one time back and forth there and a plane. And I used to fly there because I ended up coming back to Memphis because I got a fellowship after I finished my coursework. And I would fly back and forth there on my auntie's buddy passes for United every week. uh, Every Thursday. Did you
0: always take your daughter with you when you went? No. Now, when I
1: went, so what would happen was my flight would be at six o'clock in the morning. I would leave for the airport like 530. This is, you know, way back. <laughs> this is way back in the day. I would leave. It was after nine 11, but still back in the day, I would leave for the airport like five 30, get their roll up right as the door was getting ready to close. And my mom would come or my boyfriend at the time would be there and they would be there with the Sata and they would get her to school, to daycare. Um, and then when I would get back, somebody would get her from school and I would be home that evening. Either I would take the, the 750 plane home wow. and get back like nine something, um, 915, or I would take a train home, which is an eight o'clock train, but I wouldn't get there until the next morning.
0: Okay, so right now you remind me of a guy. First of all, before I go to what you remind me of, I'm sorry about Assad's father's mm. death. Mm-hmm. That must. Um, we might talk a little bit more about it as we go on. But you remind me of David Goggins. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Mm-mm. He's, um, he's um, an athlete, uh, a ex-Navy SEAL. Mm. He's one of those people that has the... He he has a will and a drive that is I can't even put words to it. He has a book out there called Can't Hurt Me. But he's one of those people that believes that if you can think it, you can do it and our bodies can just go, go, go. Mm-hmm. I know some people have a whole school of thought that is unhealthy to approach mm-hmm. things that way, but mm-hmm. there's some value in it. Mm-hmm. If you do put your mind to mm-hmm. what you want to do, you mm-hmm. can get it done. I feel like a driven person myself, but you hear someone else's story I'm like I don't
1: know (laughs) (laughs) I mean when I hear my own story I have no idea who that person was that was doing that like it just seems like a completely different person and I'm sure I did become several different people after that but it just seems that there was yeah my mind was completely In control, it was task, 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 go, 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 like that. Mm -hmm. All right. How were you able to navigate
0: that period, like losing a loved one to suicide and having a baby by them? Is this something you want to talk about?
1: Yeah, it was... was, You know, I'm still figuring that out because now I'm going to tell you some astrology. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is actually something that I'm thinking about because this weekend... There is uh, an eclipse, a south node eclipse in Libra. And south node is where you let things go. What are you releasing? And Libra is the sign that's all about justice and balance and fairness. And for me, Libra is my first house, which is my, that means that's your personality. That's who you are. That's your house of self. Is that
0: your your main star? Were you born in September, October time?
1: No. So I was born in June. So your sun can be anywhere in your chart. But the, that first house is your rising sign. And it's the one that defines you like So you're the in, most, Libra in Libra rising. Libra mm-hmm. rising. And the last time there was a South Node eclipse here was in October of 2004 after DeMadre died. And so I've been thinking a lot about like, what was that time? And I'm in a very different place now. Um, I'm writing a book that deals somewhat, um, talks a little bit about my experience. So I've really been trying to sit with that question, like, what was that like? How did I get through that? And I think, you know, part of it was that when he died, he did not go away. He was very present. I remember being outside of the house where he had killed himself, and I was talking to a detective. And the detective is speaking, but there is a group of gnats that has shaped itself, like a head and a shoulders and arms, and it's about 6'2", six 6'3", six that's his height, and it's the gnats are kind of like moving, gesticulating, as if a person was like waving their arms at me. And I looked at it and I was like, that's not happening. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm imagining things because it was strange because I was like, "Gnats shouldn't be around gathered like this, this time of day. They used to do that in the evening time. I was like, what is this? Um, So I really kind of put it out of my mind and went on. But then uh, as the writer, Toni Morrison would say, strange things, (laughs) strange things started to happen. And yeah, I was experiencing like lights being turned on and off and the radio being turned on and off and the uh, testing button on the smoke detector being beeped. And I one day was so just like, what am I supposed to do with this? I just ran out of my house. I didn't even know where or what a botanica was. I don't know if I knew. I don't know if I looked it up on the internet. I don't know what I did. But I end up at this place that's a spiritual supply store. Okay. And I say to the man, hey, um, I think that my dead baby daddy who killed himself is haunting me because he didn't cross over. Because he thought death was going to end his pain. And it didn't. And I need some help. And that man just looked at me and he was like, yeah, sure. Okay. And... He was the first person that I had really, because I told my mom these things and she's, you know, a Southern Baptist lady. She was like the dead know nothing, you know, like just, pre- yeah, just, you know, that's just basically like that's not <laughs> happening or that can't happen. That's yeah. what she was saying to me. And I think, you know, she was trying to figure out how do you comfort your daughter who has right. just experienced this because we were on the phone together when he did it. So in addition to it happening, I heard it happen mm-hmm. and then had to, I was in the next county for a student event and I had to come back to our house to like be at the scene. And so I think she was just trying to figure out how to comfort me. And I was just trying to figure out how to make the stuff in the house stop happening. And so... Yeah, he told me to set up an altar. And he talked to me about altars and what I could do. And so I think I must have left there, you know, like with a white candle and incense, different things like that. And then I just set it all up and I said, "Okay, do you want to (laughs) talk? Okay, let's let's talk. And so also during that time, you know, I'm teaching my first class for the first time. I don't have. My person who was co-parenting with me, who was keeping the yeah. baby when I was in class. So I had to start calling on my community. One friend would keep her when I had a gender seminar in the afternoon. My mom would come for another time I had class. My dad would come and keep her when I had to teach. and But the rest of the time, it was just us. Yeah, And yeah, I would just most of the time like play with her do whatever I needed to do to get her situated for bed then I would do my work and then I would go to the altar especially if he was doing something to make his presence known then I would go to the altar
0: okay so I have questions mm-hmm. tons of them out, but I can even remember them so the altar was in his honor yes okay. and it was
1: a space to communicate with him
0: did you ever feel like you did communicate oh
1: yes oh yes I mean and he he as I sort of suspected yeah he was upset um about his death and he was upset that he was kind of in this liminal space he didn't really know what to do and I didn't I had to learn you know how to help a person on the other side like like you know, do they need food? Do they need money? Do they need water? You know, do they need constant communication? Are there needs that are needed on the other side? I mean, in I feel like what I've learned is that there are ways that the other side is sort of on this side too. It's just a veil between us. And like they coexist with us.
0: Okay. You know, we are,
1: we're actually crossing
0: very um, illogical boundaries. Mm. So let's take a break for a second and talk about your hair. <laughs> we'll come back. We'll come back to all of this. <laughs> let's just talk about your hair for a second. So how long have you had locks?
1: <laughs> so this these, this set of locks is... Uh, I started accidentally the pandemic made me start these locks her locks are beautiful by the way <laughs> <laughs> the pandemic made me start these locks um so it would have been march 2020 that i would have gone to the barbershop and, <laughs> and cut it all off because i had had a very low haircut and then i said you know maybe i'll start my locks again so december 2019 my loctician in memphis she did it when i was home for the holiday and she was like you ain't gonna keep these (laughs) (laughs) because you always take them down and cut your hair and my hair was yeah very short and because i look back at my license from that i got when i moved to dc in 2019 and it's just like very low blonde afro and yeah 2020 no barbershop and so you just let it grow i just let it grow and I cannot remember when I found you but it was like oh my God 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 <laughs> intends for me to have these locks because I
0: think it was sometime in 2021
1: one. yes, shortly
0: after I opened in Silver Spring because mm-hmm. I think you must have been one of my very
1: first mm-hmm. wave mm-hmm. of clients that mm-hmm. I got yeah yeah because I we had been in Memphis um, for most of the pandemic for like we we went home in May 2020, and we didn't come back to April, or so of 2021. And I think maybe we went back for a little bit in the summer, but in any event, we by the time fall 2021 started, it was like okay, I have to have a loctician. he because I'm because I have had locks previously, but I never had a lactation. Okay, I had my first set of locks in when I was pregnant with Asata. Did you do it yourself? I did. I did and and all of us were just like we were so we were such rogue people we just you know all twisting our hair and then just you know so many of us um during that time um in Memphis were doing that well I say so many of us but there was still like a lot of taboo or discrimination against locks especially for women um, you know the the standard stereotypes. The, they're dirty. All these kinds of things like this. So why did you do it at that time?
0: Considering that you were, you know, going along the line of academics, you're a serious person.
1: I mean, I <laughs> felt like this was a serious thing. Like I, it I, is a serious I felt, thing. <laughs> I felt like this hair was very serious, and I felt like it was an expression of me. Okay. Um, and because I had cut my hair all off, I had a relaxer. And I had cut all that hair off my sophomore year, my second year, which was technically my junior year. So 19, I cut all my hair off. And that's when I started the locks, actually. I was going to the barbershop for a little while, and then I started letting it grow, and then I just started twisting it, and then all of a sudden, yes, I had these (laughs) wonderful, beautiful locks. And yeah, I cut that set of locks off, which were, you know, neckish length, a little bit to the shoulder, maybe. Um, because I thought I was driving in the car and I thought I felt that DeMadre was pulling them when he was no longer there, which is something that he would he do would when do. I was driving. And I was like, oh, no, these got to go. So I <laughs> cut them off. Yeah. And so that was the first set. And then after a while, and then I just went to the barbershop for a while, and after a while, I felt like okay, I'm ready to grow my hair back, and I is did. This is the second set. This oh, is locks. the no. This is my fourth <laughs> set of locks. Okay, this is my fourth <laughs> set of locks. Mm-hmm. But Did I, you
0: ever keep the ones you cut off?
1: I yeah, I have two, two sets of them that I yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think of reattaching them? So I so when I first kept them. I was only keeping them, you know, so no one would get them and do juju to them. (laughs) (laughs) And then later on, people were locked. There were more locticians like offering services and things like that. And I saw reattachment services. And I remember talking to one of my good friends about this. And she, she didn't say this directly. But what I... Intuitive from what she said was, girl, why are you going to attach that old energy to your head?
0: I think this exact same thing because I did mm-hmm. cut my hair last year mm-hmm. and I had grown them down to my butt mm-hmm. and I still have them. I'm mm-hmm. not really sure why because I'm not attached to them in any way. Mm-hmm. Or so I think. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't mm-hmm. think I will ever put them back. I feel like yeah. those years are those years. Yeah. And what I have now is
1: now. Yeah, this... Like, I can definitely with this set of locks, I can say that... I definitely don't have any attachment to those sets. And I just haven't, you know, it comes up every now and again, like if it's a solstice, winter solstice or something, I think, oh, it's time to sort of release this hair, you know, burn it or something like that. And, but yeah, this, I I just, but when she, when I was first thinking about it, when I first realized it, I was like, oh yes, I can just, Attach my old back. hair back. I can just put it back. But no, absolutely not.
0: And as a professor at Georgetown today, mm-hmm. do you feel like the hair is an expectation since you actually already are in the African um, studies space? Or is it is it something that your colleagues still frown about? Do you feel like there's still a, any sort of discrimination about you, Locks know, today.
1: you know I do not and I have I, I know that there are black women who work in other kinds of professional spaces who feel that you know they need to have straight hair or they need to have a straight wig or something like that and there is very real discrimination against black women's hair period everywhere but I think I have always just been like, this is my hair. (laughs) (laughs) Get with it or... (laughs) Get with it or don't. I don't, you know... I will say that my experiences of discrimination often have very little to do with my hair and everything to do with my race and gender. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So many conversations. Okay, now that we have taken a break, let's go back. (laughs) You said your mom was a Baptist. Mm -hmm. And...
1: I will assume
0: you grew up Baptist. Yeah, I did,
1: I did grow up in the church, but we grew up very skeptical because my mother, I feel like she would say, this is absurd for me to say this, but she wasn't like the most fervent believer. And what I mean by that is that she had questions and she asked questions and she didn't take things uncritically. OK. And so she didn't think that children we are all academics. So yeah. <laughs> and she she was a journalism major in college. So she she's all about the questions, even for the Bible, who, what, when, where, why and yeah. how she's yep. all about the questions. And she taught us to question. And so when we would be in Sunday school, like nine, 10 years old, I would be really going toe to toe with the Sunday school teacher. <laughs> he was a man. And he would say misogynist things all the time. And I don't think I, I didn't even know the word misogynist, but I knew like you're talking badly about women. Why does this book say this? Why? I know that I was so deeply annoying to, (laughs) to him. Um, And so, and my mother didn't really require that we believe. Okay. She just thought that Sunday school was just, you know, good socialization, you learn a little bit about morality that's <laughs> it's actually also a good network
0: like yes said,
1: so <laughs> but she you, she wasn't even concerned about that she was not like we we didn't go to that kind of church we went to a church that she had gone to for a long time it was a kind of a i would say an old folks church and it wasn't one of the so like elite churches networking just no just a country going. just country church <laughs> Country black people, hearing the word, hearing the singing, (laughs) giving the offering, hearing the singing, which I loved. Um, And yeah, that was it. Okay. So when you had this experience
0: and you felt like a scientist father was still around Mm -hmm. you, what prompted you to seek alternative, you know,
1: solutions to the issue that you were having? Now, keep in mind, at this time, I am a super scientist. I am a total Western empiricist. Like, I am like, can I prove it? How can I study it? What is the, you know, how do I collect the data and so forth? And so for a long time, I was gaslighting myself that these things were even happening. I was like, no, these can't be happening. This can't be happening. Because like, so for instance, when the radio came on, the radio was not plugged in. I had unplugged it because it was coming on, and so when when I had it plugged up and it was coming on, I could say, "Oh, well, the cord has a short." Okay, that's that's the explanation for that. Didn't make sense, (laughs) but when I unplugged it and it was coming on, I was just like. something's not right right. and then even then I'm like maybe some internal mechanism (laughs) maybe there's a malfunction maybe there's still some electrical juice left in it from when it was plugged (laughs) up before I mean look I was looking for all the other explanations possible because I just didn't grow up to believe any of that we didn't nobody talked about ghosts nobody talked about spirits Again, my mother was always talking about the dead know nothing, you know, so in in our conversations about the dead, when people would die, it was just like, they're dead. That's that's yeah. it. There's you know, they went to heaven or they went to hell or whatever. We don't know. They're just dead. Um, so the idea of an afterlife was new to me. And the first thing I did before I went to uh, alternative help was to go to the library <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I read books about Huda religion and about African traditional religion. And I was like, oh, so there are other ways of thinking about death that could be at play here. And this could possibly be what's going on. So it was me being introduced to whole different worldviews of what might be happening and over the years, I've come to learn these worldviews were always in our family. Okay. These worldviews were always in our family. It's just that my mom was such an empiricist. You know, it was breaking from the old country ways. Right. Her generation.
0: Right. Right. Which is very much linked to the African ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Today. Do you identify with any religion or social groups or or do you just do your own thing?
1: I just do my own thing and it's influenced by Huda religion and it's influenced by old Baptist religion and it's influenced by Kikongo traditions and it's influenced by Yoruba traditions. So I have all these things, but I would say that the place that I I'm grounded the most is you know most African traditional religions and most black folks in America most black folks in the world we are about that ancestor worship we are about or ancestor veneration having these conversations with our ancestors and so that's the place where I'm squ- I squarely identify as a person who does ancestor veneration and as a person who believes that, yeah, you have the power, you have the asher, you can change things, you can make things so. Okay,
0: um, so it will this conversation, and I think we've had similar in the salon, um, is interesting because one will think that for somebody like me who grew up in Africa, you would be more in touch with the at least um Yoruba. You know, I know exactly mm. where I'm from. I can take you to my great grandfather's house. Mm-hmm. So one would think that I'll be more in touch with the local religions that mm-hmm. exist in Africa. But like many other Nigerians who would be listening to this, they could all tell you that they're either Christian or Muslim. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. most times if anybody else is doing any sort of traditional African worship, it's usually underground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so interestingly my dad died in 2019 Mm. and before he many years before he died he had been separated from my mom Mm. I was already in university when that separation Mm -hmm. happened Mm -hmm. so there was no requirement for us to spend time share space and I, I was angry with him for for you know Uh, (laughs) unrightfully angry with him because of my mom who my mom wasn't asking me to be angry but I I had all of that anger and I wasn't Mm -hmm. speaking to my dad for a very long time and when I even started to speak to him I would do the new year Christmas birthdays and not really have a relationship Mm -hmm. with him Mm -hmm. and I think um, this might be a good place to say that I did meet someone an older friend about 15 years older than me who also had a daughter that he was separated or divorced from her Mm. mom and i could see him his daughter was about my age when my parents separated okay and i could see him constantly try to reach out to his daughter in a way that she was very you know nonchalant Mm. of Mm -hmm. his presence Mm -hmm. um regardless of All the things that my father did that may not have been good in Mm -hmm. by moral standards, he always did try to be there for Mm -hmm. me. And over those years, he always tried to reach out for me. Mm -hmm. So just seeing the same occurrence happen outside of myself, so Mm -hmm. I could see myself Mm -hmm. in that young girl and I could see my father in my friend. Mm -hmm. And I could see a man who was genuinely saying, I'm not perfect, but I'm still your father and I want to be there for you. And I had this father that I was... Practically ignoring, you know, the best relationship I had at that time. And this must have been 2017, so about two years before he died. Was me kind of maybe feeling guilty sometimes and I'll send him some money, even mm-hmm. though he didn't need it. Mm-hmm. But he'll be very happy that I did because mm-hmm. for him, it just meant I was thinking of him. Mm-hmm. So that experiencing, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, my life playing out in someone else's life made me reconnect with my dad and the very first time I called him to say hey dad I want to come and see you he said let me call you back and he was a politician in Nigeria he kind of had a big position Mm -hmm. in Lagos. and he said let me call you back and he called me back and he said yeah I've cleared my calendar uh you know for the whole day just let me know when and I was like it's not that serious I'm just coming to see you (laughs) you know but that now that he's gone that really does make me feel very special so in reconnecting with him over those 2 years before he did feel, before he fell sick had cancer and died I got to realize that he had converted to Ogun worship mm. which is one of the African religious worships and cuz my mom is a christian even though my parents while they were together there was no big emphasis on religion. Mm. He grew up Muslim. She was Christian. Um, I have aunties who are Catholic, Pentecostal. So like wherever you are, you mm-hmm. just do what they do. You
1: do what they do. <laughs> you know, you do
0: what when they you do. go to Aunt Lisa's house, you read the rosary. When you go to Auntie Angela's <laughs> house, you go for night vigil. <laughs> right. or, you know, wherever you are, when, right. when it's time for when gram- grandma is doing Salah, you're going to eat the Salah mm. meat. So for me, it was just all the same. I just, religion... <laughs> was dependent on who you were with? Yes. So whichever family you mm-hmm. were with. So he told me he had stayed worshipping Ogun and he kind of told me his experience about it. He was skeptical because he felt a lot of people frown at African religions mm-hmm. and he didn't know how Christian I was or mm-hmm. how, you know, off. So he didn't want to do anything or say anything that would push me away from him. But I found it kind of cool. I was like, well, that's kind of cool. You know, I want to know more. Why are you doing it? What does it mean? How is it different? How do you worship? What's Mm -hmm. what's what makes it so different? So we had all those conversations. And um he requested, uh, because he was sick for a while before he died, so he knew he was dying, and he requested he wanted an Ogun funeral. Mm. And that I think I did show you pictures. Yes.
1: Those are unforgettable photos.
0: Ended up being the most amazing ceremony i've ever attended it was so colorful it was so bright apart from the fact that i had to walk bare feet and to feather a white <laughs> chicken mm. um from from where the procession started and to, how long was that walk it was probably about three hours mm. but mm. It, it was it gave me a bigger connection to home so i'm from a city that is very metropolitan and oftentimes people say nobody's really from Lagos. Lagos belongs to everybody. Mm -hmm. And even though I grew up, I know exactly where my heritage is from. For the most part, I've kind of felt like, you know, everybody's here is everybody's city. But that ceremony and how Lagos Island is one of the most populous places you could go to in in Lagos. We did not have any police or any traffic controllers to come help with the procession. Mm -hmm. But when we started that procession, the roots parted. And I was like, wow, this is home. Because yeah. regardless of the millions of people who are here, those people who are from here are doing something. And you don't even have to be told. You just yeah. kind of give way yeah. for the people who own the land. So that gave yeah. me all sorts of connections. Um, And so I, I bring up all of this story just to kind of connect because you, you've talked about the ancestor veneration Mm -hmm. I get the word right Mm -hmm. and what does that really mean because my exposure to ogon worship for me was fulfilling what my father wanted and in the process of his illness and his death i learned one or two things uh in my mind i was like "Eh, a religion is a religion religion has been used to control us yes over time yes so it's not something i necessarily want to Mm-hmm. jump in or associate with because people mm-hmm. will always take advantage of mm-hmm. organized religion um, but what exactly does it mean to connect with your ancestors are they really there can you for a fact feel them or mm-hmm. is it just wishful thinking mm-hmm. is this like mm-hmm. some low class mass delusion yes <laughs>
1: yes well first let me say thank you I can I can listen to the story about your father like A million times because I think it's such a beautiful thing because we we do fall out with our parents. I had a period not necessarily of a strain. I wasn't estranged from my father, but I was upset with how he had treated my mother and how my mother, you know, had sort of reacted in some ways. She was entitled to all the ways that she reacted, but it made our lives miserable, the both of them. So he was making her miserable. She was making making everybody (laughs) else miserable, (laughs) (laughs) you know. And uh, so then we were able to, like, at one time my mother was like, your father says you only call him when you want money. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, busted. I didn't realize that. I, oh, I didn't realize I was really seen uh, like that. We're supposed to have another relationship yes, besides I money. Yes, I was like, what? What, what? what is he there for? Um, but, yeah, so I was glad that I got to. I wish I had more time with him to learn more things i would ask him so many more questions but i did get to have like a very 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 good adult relationship with him so i'm sorry for the loss of your father but i'm so glad you had that time um at the end to really just make some connections and i'm so glad that you honored his wishes Oh and, yeah, it was a little bit of a
0: battle, but we did
1: it. Uh, <laughs> it happened. And, and you are blessed and highly favored. As yeah. they say in the Christian church, you're blessed and highly favored as Amen. a result. <laughs> but yeah, the, you know, I used to not, I, I didn't want to believe it about somebody being there on the other side. I really just didn't. But they proved to me over and over and over again, their presence. And you say this is your father, and this is my father, Ashita's father. This is Asata's father. This is my maternal grandfather, who I never met before, but who I came into knowledge of simply because, well, I I knew of him already. And I remember one time my, uh, being upset having my mother's upsetness with her father's absence. And my husband told me, well, your relationship with your grandfather is not your mother's relationship with her father. So you should try to reach out to him. He was talking about on the altar. Again, this is a man that I have never met. And it turned out that this man was so active his youngest daughter, who is my youngest aunt, moved to Memphis, had never lived in Memphis before. Her father told her never moved to Memphis, had moved to Memphis for a very, very unique job opportunity. And my mother found out that she had done her ancestry. My mother found out that we were actually related she always knew that was her father. People in the neighborhood said it. But you know, it was the way that black people do back in the day. It's like, mm. you look just like them. That's your daddy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we were all of a sudden connected to this whole other side of the family. And my aunt told me a story about my maternal grandfather escaping from the plantation. He was a sharecropper. His family was sharecroppers. Escaping from the plantation as a teenager and joining the military changing his name, lying about his age and ended up going to World War II and after that story I just felt like a wind blew open at my altar and I was having dreams where he was coming and speaking to me and just telling me stories this is the most powerful ancestor experience I've had because my dad is more so like so when he first died, because I had done all that work with Demandre, I knew exactly, you know, how to set the altar, what to do, how long to wait, all of these things. And he was immediately there and he would speak to me through any tool that I used. Now, in some African traditional religions, like in e for instance, is going to be the Goon. It's not going to be any, you're not going to use any tarot cards or anything. You're just going to use the traditional implements. But. Uh,
0: What's that? Cowries? Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: uh-huh different. cowries are different. The,
0: mm-hmm. the, the, the thing and some powder. I don't uh, know what the powder uh, is made uh, off of and, it.
1: Yeah. And you have the mats that you're doing the divination on and you're going to consult Ifa. Like that is very, like that is the religion. And that is what you're trained to do when you're initiated and one of the things that i had to think about as a black american was like we all come from africa but when we got to the new world we became an amalgamation of different religions because there were multiple kinds of religions along the west coast of africa and central africa so many different religions and as a people I just can't even imagine all these different groups of African folks getting together and saying, okay, these are the things you that, must are, do. that are going to be a part of this new religion that we have in this new world, and it is hoodoo. Okay. Right. And so...
0: And hoodoo is the same thing as voodoo?
1: Hoodoo, not the same thing as voodoo. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hoodoo, not the same thing as voodoo, right? Vodoon... Uh, A Haitian practice also still descended from African traditional religions, but also its own thing. so I had to learn that, yeah, we had our own things as black, new black Americans becoming black Americans. And a lot of us ended up working with indigenous people who were already here to learn the herbs and stuff like that. Cause we were displaced from mm-hmm. our typical plants. Some, some things we brought over and added here. And then we also learned from some old European traditions that were still, uh, what we might call the occult, um, okay. parts of things. And so we became an amalgam, um, of these different forms of working with the earth of understanding the portal between the living and the dead. Like my great-grandmother, my maternal great-grandmother was a midwife. Mm. So just like working with people who come in and then people who go out, all of those kinds of things just were so much a part of who we are. And you can still see the traces of it. Like Black people love a funeral. We are serious about, (laughs) you know, dealing with the dead. And it's just that because of Christianity, oftentimes people feel scared to talk to the dead but i meet people all the time if they hear my story if i'm giving a talk just the other day i was in public um at a bar <laughs> at a rooftop bar and a lady was sitting there and she was by herself and there was kind of like a shared sitting space and i'm telling you 10 minutes later we were talking about ancestors her grandmother uh, and her grandmother and grandfather had passed, and she was talking about how they come to her and how her grandmother had prepared her for her death and like what to do. And I just and she would she has all these lucid dreams, and so I feel like there's a lot of shame, even though there's much more public today. and acceptance today. Much more public practice and acceptance today. There's still some kind of shame or reticence about talking about having a relationship with the dead
0: yeah it still feels somehow even mm-hmm, for me talking mm-hmm, to you today mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we've had these conversations before we've talked about me putting together an altar which kind you of, I know, must do
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, oh, that sounds like a good idea but i don't even know where to start i know you had given me some suggestions mm-hmm. and we you know but well we'll see um this, this, I, I just wanted to add, and I think we kind of have to wrap up here mm. in a bit. I think this conversation needs to continue to happen, but from an African, purely African perspective, um, sometimes we forget the impact of colonialism oh, yeah. on mental slavery, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's a whole, at least speaking for my country itself, at least two hundred million of us who. At, the bigger percentage of us are disconnected mm-hmm. from an alternative. And I think having these conversations doesn't mean everybody should become an Ifa, Oku, mm-hmm. amadioha mm-hmm. worshipper. But I think it would be nice to have as much awareness of the alternatives mm-hmm. as we do of the popular religions that you have out there.
1: Yeah. And to figure out like what works for you. Like I... I still grew up in church, so if uh, the spirituals come on, like some, I sometimes my ancestors—that's what they want to hear. They want me to sing. That's a song, a gospel song to them. They want to hear those things. It doesn't mean that you sort of throw away all the things, but you do have to throw off the dogma, and you do have to throw off the colonialism. I think it's also related to the hair.
0: Okay. A, 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 Jama-
1: <laughs> a Jamaican man is gonna tell me, "I love your natty dread. I love your hair." You know, whereas in other situations, the hair is just, you know, some people might look down on it because it's it's tied to a certain kind of essence of who we are, and people are uncomfortable with that.
0: Okay. All right. Our producer is kind of kicking us out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Uh, but hopefully it's we plenty can plenty to we, work with there. Yeah, we can have some more time to continue to have these conversations and it'll yeah. be interesting to see what the reaction is to this particular <laughs> episode. Uh, but thank you so much, Andrea, for honouring my call thank and you coming on me. the Lockitude Podcast. It's been Always a, a pleasure. pleasure hosting you. Always a pleasure to so, talk to you. I'll be looking forward to your next hair appointment yes. in Virginia. And uh
1: I already got the map.
0: (laughs) All right, Uh I'm gonna get there. (laughs) If you're not driving, you can take the metro. No, no, I'm taking the metro. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's a walking distance from Ashbourne Station. So yeah, yeah, that's where it is. All right. So all right, thank you very much, and it's a wrap for today. Hope to see you all next time, and uh, keep it locked with an attitude. Maybe talk to an ancestor. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Bye.